Hello and welcome to Atlantic Fellows Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. As the reality of coronavirus, COVID-19, and the length of its purported unwelcome stay begins to dawn on the world, we ask what we can do as Atlantic Fellows and as a community to prepare and sustain ourselves and our loved ones mentally during the coming weeks and months. I'm joined on the phone by Professor Ian Robertson, neuroscientist and co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin, to discuss what steps we can take to protect our mental health. Ian, thank you for joining us. These are unprecedented times where mental health is usually an important vital issue in our lives regardless, and these are not the best of times. So how pertinent should we be about being aware of our mental health? I think it's very important, Fanula, that we use this time to take stock and you see it as an opportunity and not just as a time of threat and worry. One of the really positive things about this whole unpleasant and very worrying epidemic is the way that people are pulling together, the way that people are finding each other and supporting each other. And we know that one of the great quellers of anxiety is contact with other people and helping other people. Now, we can't have physical contact. We have to separate these days. But we have this wonderful technology that allows us to be in contact with people. So I think there are opportunities here for us to rediscover some really important things in life, particularly for those of us that come from more privileged backgrounds, if you like. Sometimes we can get sucked into the materialism of endless going forward and sometimes being pulled back by a crisis like this helps us to rediscover things that are really more fundamental to us and actually, in the end, more nurturing of our own psychological well-being. If we are to talk about isolation, because we might not be able to be physically in touch with people as we have been, what are the warning signs we should be looking for that we ourselves or perhaps someone we know might be beginning to be a little anxious or depressed? Well, the key sign of someone is actually the content of their language, either written or spoken, and changes in patterns of behaviour. If someone is usually a very frequent or voluble communicator and suddenly they change very much, that's a warning sign. Or alternatively, you could have someone who actually is a sparse communicator who suddenly starts communicating an awful lot. So changes in behaviour would be a key sign. And then there's the actual content of the language. The use of negative words, people feeling hopeless or helpless. Helplessness is one of the great enemies of feeling psychologically well. And so the critical thing is that we help people feel they have tiny bits of control, at least even though the whole vast background of this thing is not necessarily controllable except by world governments. We can all control our own situation to a better extent by taking steps For example, structuring our contacts with other people, with fellow fellows and friends and family. The risk is that we start contacting them, we start talking each other down, talking worrying things and negative things. And Have you heard that? And I've heard that. An awful lot of the things you've heard that are going to happen may not be true. So the important thing is to ration passing on negative information. Don't just automatically retweet any worrying tweet or Facebook post or something that you read. Try and balance that with positive things as well. And try and structure your contacts with other people to be not about coronavirus and not about you know problems. For example, I'm in a book group. We're not cancelling the book group. We're having a virtual book group next week. 
my son in Paris and in London want to have a virtual chess tournament. We're even talking about having a dinner together where we're all cooking the same thing in different places. So there are creative ways in which you can create enjoyable interactions, even though you're not in physical contact with people. You might be phoning your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. And of course, the topic of the day will be coronavirus. It's hard not to talk about it. However, if you can put a little creativity into structuring the interaction in some way that doesn't involve just worry and talk, you will actually potentially create types of communication that will sustain you long beyond when this crisis has passed. Just to go back on something you said earlier, which was some of the things that we're hearing about may not be true. And it really is then an attempt to separate fact from fiction. Yes. I was guilty myself early on. It was a very bleak tweet from someone in Iran, as if Iran was falling to pieces. And I retweeted it to a few people, and a journalist friend of mine said, look, I don't think this is accurate. And he was right, but I just sent it to a small WhatsApp group. I think we have to question everything we hear and try and find trusted sources and check out before we pass on a worrying message or a negative prediction of what some check it out against the fact. And even some of the predictions about death rates, for example, these models are based on governments not doing anything. If you look at places like Singapore and Taiwan, they have taken incredible action that have defied the models completely. So we have to be optimistic and try and support our governments by taking the individual action that will allow us to feel at least partly in control over our own fate in this crisis. To those fellows who are on the front lines, either in their personal lives or in their professional lives, how can they pace themselves for something which could really be a long haul? We can tolerate enough lot of things, even if over long periods, if we can see the end of them. But where there's an uncertain end, it's much harder for us to maintain the optimism and the confidence and the motivation. So that's why we have to structure our time. We have to create goals for ourselves and sub-goals, but we also have to create rewards for ourselves. You can't just give of yourself 24 hours a day. You will run yourself into the ground, which will do no one any good. So what you have to do is you have to say, well, look, I'm going to work for X hours today. I'm going to do the very best I can, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to do something nice for myself. Sit down and watch a movie or I'm going to just cook myself something really nice. I'm just going to sit and listen to some nice music. So it's important to structure our time, not just be always working, because the goals will never be at an end if you do that in such a complex situation. So it's chunking your time, knowing when you're finished, realizing you can't think or worry about these people or this problem all the time, and giving yourself a reward, giving yourself a little pleasant experience. So you have to program small pleasant experiences and even big things, maybe a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or a drink or something, programming small pleasant experiences for yourself. That will keep your mood up and give you energy for a much longer period than if you just run yourself into the ground. A final question, Ian. The Atlantic Fellows for Equity and Brain Health at GBHI, where you're a co-director in Dublin, is one of seven Atlantic Fellows programmes. It's very, very early days, but as a community which is equity-focused, all these seven programmes, is there an opportunity here for Fellows and for us as a community as a whole to further the work of equity as a result of this crisis? I think the answer to that is yes. The world is not going to be the same after this crisis as it was before it. People are going to have to go back to values The values are what holds the seven Atlantic programs together. And when people rediscover their values, they feel happier. They feel more committed. 
And so I think that we are going to see the opportunity here for particularly the richer countries to realize we're in one world here. We cannot just assume that we can pad our own nests and maintain our own privilege irrespective of the rest of the world. I mean, this pandemic spread across the globe to every country in the world in a matter of weeks. It just shows us what a connected global network we are. So I do think that once people, in, particularly in the richer countries and, and the rich people in the poorer countries, realize that they cannot hide behind their big gates and assume that they can live their lives irrespective of what's happening elsewhere, I think that may be a major potential upside if people address the changes in the right way of this crisis. Well, Professor Ian Robertson, thank you very much for your time. And we hope that your sound advice will be of some comfort to our fellows in the Atlantic Fellows community and beyond who might be listening to this. So Professor Ian Robertson, neuroscientist, co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College, Dublin. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You've been listening to Atlantic Fellows Conversations.